Have you ever started a career and quickly realized it wasn't what you anticipated? This week's guest, Dr. Danny Brissell, shares how his career as a political journalist was short-lived and the reason it propelled him to turn to education and leadership. Danny is the author of 15 books, a world-renowned speaker, and an educational and corporate leadership coach. I'm so excited to share Danny's unique leadership story with you. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Danny, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all that you do for your audience. No, I appreciate it. It's a true honor to speak with you today. And you are a man of many hats and you speak all over the country and you help so many educators. And before we begin, I would just love to hear about your educational and leadership journey. I kind of feel like Bert from Mary Poppins, Josh. Uh, I can't hold down steady employment. One day I'm, I'm playing 20 instruments. The next day I'm drawing on the sidewalk. The next day I'm cleaning chimneys. Uh, so I've worn lots of different hats. My undergraduate degrees were in sociology and journalism. It was great. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I got to work for the largest homeless shelter in America. I worked for a United States congressman. I worked for the, the largest association of newspaper editors as a journalist, and that was going to be my plan, was I was going to be the next Charles Kuralt and do all these great stories about America. And so I was actually blessed. I was, at, I was able to cover President Bush Sr. in the 92 election. I was at a press conference, and the president said something, and I looked at six of the leads that my colleagues had written, and I, I questioned, I'm like, wow, he didn't say anything that controversial, and you're making him look pretty bad. And I that's not why I became a journalist. I, I, I understand everybody has their viewpoint. That's fine. And I don't believe there is objectivity in journalism. It's, but we can all be fair. And really, the reason I had become a journalist was to be a Charles Kuralt and to really do these stories that just glorified the, the small towns in America and the quirky characters. And uh, it wasn't like that. And so then I did a total reversal and I wound up teaching in inner city Los Angeles for many years and I loved it. I absolutely, I love the kids, but uh, the bureaucracy really got to me. And, and you're, you're an assistant principal and, and you understand the bureaucracy in education that uh, all of us, we have these noble intentions where it's like, oh, it's, it's Monday morning, I'm gonna fix the school. And I'm like, well, you know, the, the bus is late, so you're gonna have to call the parents today. I'm like, okay. It's Tuesday morning. I'm going to fix the school. But, well, we got a budget meeting down at central office you got to go to. Okay. It's Wednesday morning. I'm going to fix the school. And then you're like, well, it's like, wow, there's all these uh, fires to be put out. But it's also invigorating. I, I was always uh, really excited about that. I started training parents and, and teachers, and I became a professor at the university. And I really, I really started enjoying uh, training people and reading strategies and how to help their kids. And people urged me to go into the corporate world. And I said, well, I don't really know if I can go in the corporate world since I've never been in the corporate world. And a friend of mine who's a very successful uh, businessman, he said, hey, Danny, if you can get eighth graders in the inner city to read Shakespeare, I know you can get my salespeople to understand some leadership principles. So then I started treat, teaching people in leadership principles and corporate. And I still do that. Uh, I, I get to travel all around the world now. I have the greatest job in the world. I get to really pump people up whether it's in leadership or uh, motivation or reading and communication skills. And so that's what I do right now. And now, you know, with the uh, the craziness of the, the COVID, I'm doing so much more, it seems, 
just at home on my computer. I'm doing about five or six webinars a day. Uh, and it's kind of cool because I don't physically have to always go to these places. And yet I can be, I mean, you and I discussed earlier, I, I was on three continents today without ever leaving my house. <laughs> well, I'm curious about your leadership training. I know generally speaking in education, when people are tapped on the shoulder to become a leader or they're starting to think about their leadership journey, they're kind of like a blank canvas and don't really have any experience. They don't know what leadership even looks like. So when you get these folks that have very little experience, they come to you, what are some of the principles that you provide to kind of help their journey? Well, I think especially with everything that's happened after the, uh, the horrible George Floyd uh, situation, it's actually really one of the first things I try to train people as leaders is that your first 90 days in any leadership position, you need to shut your mouth and to open up your ears and to try to understand what's going on. I think we'd be much better off, but all of us would be better served if we'd stop talking and start listening. And so I think that's probably, that's why reading is such a big deal to me. It's, it's ironic because I never read as a kid. I hated reading as a kid. And then once I became a teacher and saw that my kids didn't have the, the same access to resources that I had, I, I felt ashamed of myself. And I said, okay, I'm gonna make sure that these kids have, have the, the availability to uh, opportunities that I had. And in reading, and I, I, I'll read anything, I actually have uh, one of the world's top book clubs online, lazyreaders.com, <laughs> where uh, every month I, I, uh, I make 10 book recommendations, three or four adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's level books, all under 250 pages. So teachers and staff have something to read during my faculty meetings uh, while they're bored. But I, I especially love reading biographies of successful people. And, you know, there's plenty of readers that aren't necessarily leaders, but I can't say I've ever read about an effective leader who was not an avid reader. And so that's why reading is such a big deal to me. And so probably the two tips I would give to any leader is uh, shut your mouth, listen, and read. Read about successful people because, uh, you know, Tony Robbins says it the best, I think. He says success leaves clues. And I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And so as far as leadership characteristics, what are some things that people really need to hone in on to be successful? And like you said, a, a system where every single day you can't plan for yeah. chaotic experiences, especially in leadership in education. So what are some characteristics that a successful leader has in education? I'll say, Josh, probably the best lesson I've ever learned is that I ain't all that and neither are you. When I, when I look at effective leaders, I was speaking about five years ago in Tennessee and I didn't realize Tennessee is a very long state because I booked two days in a row uh, and I thought the cities were right next to one another and they were on opposite ends of the state. But the first day I had spoken at a very rural district and the superintendent was this good old boy. He'd been there for 40 years and he spoke real slow and he was very kind to me. And he's very unassuming and everybody, he greeted everybody, he knew the janitor, he knew everybody. Uh, and then the next day, on the other end of the state was this flamboyant, younger superintendent. And the guy immediately is like, how do I do what you do? I want to be a motivational speaker, which immediately I didn't like him because I'm like, dude, you need to be a superintendent first. I mean, people are depending on you. And I found out later that day, that good old boy who was unassuming was the president of the National Association of Superintendents, oh. and you would have never known it. And I was like, that's a great lesson. Usually the more important you are, you take a background. I mean, it's kind of like 
I'm sure when President Obama introduces himself to people, and I've never met President Obama, but I'm sure he says, hi, I'm Barack. Right. He doesn't say, I'm President Obama. He doesn't have to say that because he knows he knows what he has. Yeah. I, was, I was speaking at a conference recently, and I, I'm like, oh, I'm Danny. And this guy's like, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And I'm like, well, I'm Dr. Brussel, but you know, who are you trying to impress? Right. And so I, I've always... Again, I don't know if it's a universal characteristic. It's something that I admire. I admire the people that are really big, but you would never actually know that they were that big. They don't make you feel like you're subservient. Right. And that kind of goes with the servant leadership. I mean, absolutely. You can't ask anyone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. It's kind of funny. I, I love that you said that, Josh, because I've always been this advocate for servant leadership. I've been preaching about this for 15 years I just finished my latest book on, uh, it's, it's called Leadership Begins with Motivation. It's, it's all these cool anecdotes. And I didn't include this one in that book. Maybe I'll put it in another book. But it was about this, uh, this commander and he was trying to get his troops to do something and they wouldn't follow his orders. And finally, this other commander came on a horse and he got off the horse and he started just showing everybody what to do. And the other commander's like, well, that was easy for you. He's like, yeah, I, I bet you it was right. And as he pats the guy on the back, uh, the soldier comes up to, to the guy that was on the horse. He's like, uh, so what do you want us to do next, General Washington, who's George <laughs> Washington? And I'm like, yeah, he was willing to get dirty. Yeah. And that's what effective leaders do. Is And if we're talking to a school principal, I just spoke at a school in, in Lemon, South Dakota, and the superintendent was the last person at the event and he was mopping the floors. Yep. And I was like, man, I want you to be secretary of education. This guy, right. that that's where it should be. Yeah, that, that tells me a lot about a person. Well, I want to talk about your journey as an educator because you've been in, like you said, all different realms from kindergarten all the way to college, working in the business world too. But just in your own journey, was there any misconceptions that you had about leadership that once you got into that role, you realize, well, this is not exactly what I anticipated. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Josh. I mean, I think, and I, I would still say this, is I still don't know all that I don't know. Yeah. And when I became a teacher in the inner city, I thought I was the great white hope, and I was going to to just uh, give all these kids hope and, and all this stuff. And I learned so much more from my students so much more from my colleagues, so much more from the parents of my students than I ever, ever could have provided them. I, I taught in a very um, under-resourced area when I was teaching my little ones, because I, I, I had started off with high school and then I did middle school, upper elementary, lower elementary, but it was the little ones that really uh, just taught me so much because they don't have a filter. As we get older, we start to learn tact. And that's it's basically the old story, the emperor has no clothes, is it takes a child to tell you that. I knew I was in way over my head, but I wouldn't admit it to myself. But my little ones would say it all the time. They were great, though. I loved it. You know, Robert Fulgham wrote that great book probably 30 years ago, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. And I think it should be mandatory reading for every person that enters education. They taught me so much about... When do I have to have structure? When do I have to loosen up? I, I've always been a big believer in, and this is a really important leadership lesson. Um, again, I, I hate that I keep on going back to presidents, but you can learn so much. I, I love reading presidential biographies. And one of my favorite presidential biographies is um, uh, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It, it's an incredible story. It's a true story 
President Lincoln, when he became president of the United States, he took all of his main political rivals who had run against him for president, mm -hmm. and he made them his cabinet. And these guys hated Lincoln's guts. They were all out to get him. And by the time he was assassinated, they were all inconsolable. I mean, Edward Stanton, who was sec his secretary of war, was just like just horrified that President Lincoln had passed away. All these guys who had hated his guts were like, we have lost the greatest leader ever. And one of my favorite quotes ever by any leader, but definitely any politician, was Lincoln said, uh, I know the best way to defeat my enemies. I shall make them my friends. And that's what, as a teacher, I love like telling stories to my students. Uh, I'm, I'm probably a lot older than you, Josh. Growing up, Paul Harvey came on the radio every day at 12, 15. He'd be like, I'm Paul Harvey with the rest of the story, you know, and you do these five minute read alouds and I just always had to listen to them. And when I taught middle school, I was the only teacher in the history of my school to never have any students that were tardy. And it was because I always started class by telling the kids a Paul Harvey story. Right. And they were always, they always wanted to figure out who is this or what is this? Uh, actually, one of the books I'm writing right now is basically a modern day kind of Paul Harvey version, only it's it's focused. The, the only problem I have with most Paul Harvey stories is most of them are dead white guys. And so uh, the version I'm writing is more minorities and women, because contrary to popular belief, there's a lot of successful minorities and women. And I think all kids need to be able to look up to people and say, wow, that I mean, it was actually one of the reasons I became a teacher. I mean, at the basic, if we get to the heart of it, the one thing I really wanted to accomplish more than anything besides getting the kids to love learning was that at least one time in their life, they were able to encounter a white person who wasn't a jerk to them. Yeah. Uh, and now, I mean, this whole George Floyd thing, I mean, my heart's been broken for a couple of weeks. I, I mean, I don't know about you, Josh. I, I realized how many privileges I have as a white male that I always took for granted. I mean, uh, I actually just read an interview with, uh, you may have seen it, the, the University of Texas football coach, Tom Herman, was saying, hey, when I get pulled over, I don't have to worry about getting shot. But a lot of my players have that problem. And I'm, I'm like, God, I have so much to learn. And uh, it bothers me that this is what it took to make dialogue now. And hopefully that dialogue won't just be talk. Maybe we'll actually take action. That's what leaders do. I, I always believe that that's what separates most of us. It's... As my students always leave my classroom, I always tell them the same thing. Education is valuable, but execution is priceless. Awesome. Knowledge is not power. Only applied knowledge is power. Knowing what the right thing to do and doing the right thing are two different things. So I always tell my kids, please choose to do the right thing every day. Yeah. And it's something I need to do every day as well. Oh, most definitely. And as a leader, you can't shy away from making people uncomfortable when you know the right thing. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And this is definitely a, a time where people need to, to do some self-reflection. I'm doing it. You're doing it as leaders. Yeah. As an assistant principal, you know this better than anybody, Josh. You deal with it every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same boat. I'm, I'm looking in the mirror each day and realizing that my life is of privilege and, and I need to, to change that. And I need to be an advocate for so many of my colleagues and so many of my students. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you saying that. Yeah. Um, you are an author of many, many books. I just wanted to know if there's a leader out there, or maybe it's an aspiring leader, they're looking to begin their leadership journey. Is there a, a book that you've written that really would help them be successful and to help them in their educational journey? Well, everybody, I, I wanted to make sure to give you something, all of your audience today, Josh. So everybody, I'm going to give a complimentary copy of my book, Read, Lead, and Succeed. Uh, that's a book 
I actually, I wrote it for a principal who didn't know how to engage his faculty. So I said, okay, let me write you a book. And so once a week, I give you a positive concept. I give you an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read. I also give you a children's picture book recommendation that demonstrates the same concept. You can read that in five minutes. And so that's for all of your all of your audience. Uh, and I'm also going to give everybody two free digital parent trainings because that's what I do more. I have the world's leading reading engagement program that teaches parents and teachers how to get the kids to love reading. Because I think... I think schools do a decent job of teaching kids how to read, but I always ask people, well, what good is it teaching a kid how to read if they never want to read? Yeah. I teach kids why to read so that they'll do it out of their own. I've never had to tell, I have three children of my own. I've never had to tell them, go watch TV. I've <laughs> never had to tell them, go play a video game. Yeah. And I never want to have to tell them, go read a book. I want them to actually choose it because it's something they desire to do. And I think that's where we fall short often in education. We don't make these things engaging. Mm-hmm. And so if, if your listeners go to freereadingtraining.com, they'll get all three of those. Again, it's freereadingtraining.com. Answering your question, I love that book. The book I just finished, I'm really excited about. Leadership Begins with Motivation because... Uh, again, uh, I take the suffix Asian and I, I'm like, that suffix means to take action. Yeah. And so every chapter is like, so it's one's on motivation, one's on dedication, one's on uh, differentiation. You know, how do we take action on different things? It's like a lot of the stories are just fun, but a lot of the stories are, are a lot of those moral, moral lessons that I learned growing up. Uh, I, a lot of people collect football cards growing up. I always collected stories. And so uh, this was a, a collection of, of a whole bunch of stories that I thought, wow, this would really uh, serve people well. I, I, I kind of got the idea actually from reading that book, Team of Rivals. They talked about President Lincoln. One of his skills as a leader was intense situations. He would tell funny stories to loosen up the mood. And there's a great story he talked about uh, the founding father, Ethan Allen, was sent as a uh, as an ambassador to England and the British soldiers wanted to uh, to make fun of America. And so they, they posted a portrait of George Washington in the outhouse. And so they were playing cards with Ethan Allen and, you know, drinking and eating and waiting for him to have to relieve himself. And finally, he goes to the outhouse. And they, he comes back and they're, all the British soldiers are snickering and they're like, uh, did you see the portrait of General Washington in the uh, outhouse? And Ethan Allen's like, why, yes. And he, he doesn't seem offended. And all the soldiers are, are like, well, that didn't offend you? He's like, oh, why should it? Every American knows the sight of George Washington scares the crap out of the British. <laughs> he tells that story like during a, a deep meeting during the Civil War. Gosh, how do you not love a guy like that? I guess I'm in a mood right now for people because I see so many people with political tension. I'm like, gosh, you know, let's put aside political differences right now. Let's look at leadership in terms of being Americans. I've always told people the best time to watch politics is during the inauguration of the president, because whoever the new president is for about two weeks, Republicans and Democrats are civil to one another. And the whole the whole country comes to unite. You know, we've had a peaceful transition of power for 200 years. It's something to be very proud of. And when uh, Obama was elected president the first time in 2008, there was a great story by, they have all these historians telling you stories on the networks. And so they have like Doris Kearns Goodwin, they have Douglas Brinkley and John Meacham and all these great uh, historians. And uh, one of the historians was saying that um, President Obama, his chief of staff, his first chief of staff was uh, Rahm Emanuel, who uh, later became the, the mayor of Chicago. And Rahm Emanuel 
when he was made chief of staff, the first thing he did, which I thought this is a good lesson for leaders, is he he invited every living chief of staff to the White House for lunch. And so he gathered all of the living chiefs of staff uh, for lunch around one table at the White House. And he went around the room and he asked each living chief of staff for their, their biggest tip of advice as chief of staff. And so he goes around the room. Well, the chief of staff for President Ford was Dick Cheney, who had just, who had just been the vice president under President Bush. Yeah. And so Rahm Emanuel asks uh, Dick Cheney, he's like, what's your word of advice for the chief advice? And Dick Cheney looks at him, grins and says, keep an eye on your vice president. It should be like that. People, this is one of the things I really try to train. Uh, probably the, the talk I give the most right now is called bringing joy back into education and the workplace. And it's really that theme of, you know, take your, take your job seriously without taking yourself seriously. But what I, I really, one of the points I try to make is folks in America have to learn how to be able to disagree with one another without being disagreeable. You know, you and I don't have to agree with everything. That's great. I mean, that's America. That's the first amendment is we all have our own freedom of speech. You know, I, you, I can disagree with everything you say. You can disagree with everything I say. But at the end of the day, we're both fathers. Let's have our kids play together. You and I can have a, a drink of choice together and just enjoy life. Life's too short. So I'm not going to point to you and ask for your advice for life, but I do want to ask you about uh, advice for our new aspiring leaders. If someone doesn't have a title yet, but they're wanting to start working on their skills, what is some advice that you have for them? Well, first of all, you and I both know that a title is meaningless. That uh, especially if you're an elementary school is a perfect example of that, that uh, a principal is about the third most important person at that facility. Number one is usually the janitor and number two is the secretary. And so I've always told people, don't let a title fool you. Leaders emerge. It's fascinating. You know, these people kind of come out of nowhere. Great book that everybody should read is called The Killer Angel by Michael Sherrard. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973. If I had had a high school history teacher give me this book, I would have been a history major. But it's about the Battle of Gettysburg. And so have you ever heard the name Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain? Okay, so you, you're the namesake of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So you and I are both educated people, and neither of us had ever heard of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a, a professor at Bowdoin College in Maine. He was a professor of theology. And he decided he wanted to enlist in the, uh, the Union Army. And so he's second in command of a platoon. And right before the Battle of Gettysburg, the, the, his, his superior is promoted. And so he's put in command of his platoon. And his first order is there's 130 Irish deserters and he needs to execute them. And so he gets in front of these guys and he gives them a speech that would put King Henry V to shame. I mean, he gets them all pumped up. He's like, they've told me I'm supposed to execute you. I'm not executing anybody. He's like, but I think this is the war. This is the battle that decides it. He's like, and I want to be able to drink with you as a grandparent and tell my grandkids I fought with you guys. You know, I mean, just reading it, I was ready to fight for this guy. And so out of 130 deserters, 124 of them decide that they're going to go with him. He's got about 300 men. And I'm not a military expert, but his job is to hold the flank. So they're on this little hill. And basically... 
they have to hold the flank, which means there's going to be 9,000 Southerners charging them. And if they get past them, they, they expose the entire backside of the Northern Army. And it, it's, it's catastrophic. And so he's got 9,000 Southerners charging him. His boys, they're all shooting away. And they're all down to like their last shot. And they look to they look to Chamberlain for the command. And Chamberlain takes out his saber and he says, bayonets. And these guys are all pumped up on adrenaline. So they put on the bayonets and he's like, charge. He takes 300 men down this hill and 9,000 Southerners surrender. I'm like, who is this guy? So the great thing about this book is the book is written. Every chapter is written from the point of view of a different person. Mm-hmm. And so the next, the next chapter is uh, General Hancock for the North. He's like, who's this guy? Chamberlain. I need to meet this guy. Well, Chamberlain was shot in the battle. And uh, Chamberlain comes up to him. He's like, ready to report. And he's like, no, no, no. Hang on, son. You've done your you've done your part, man. You'll live another day. You know, you just did a great job. They're going to probably attack us from the front or from the back. And so I'm just going to put you and your men here in the middle, nice and safe, so that uh, another day you can fight. And so then the next chapter is the South, and it's General Longstreet with General Robert E. Lee. And Longstreet's like, what, what should we do, General? And Lee's like, I bet you Hancock thinks we're going to attack from the front or the back. So let's charge the middle where Chamberlain is. Him and his 300 injured men, they charge the middle, 15,000 guys. Chamberlain wins again. The two most important battles of Gettysburg, Chamberlain's the guy that wins. And so what's great about the end of the book is it gives you just a little bit like a paragraph on each person. But then they talk about Chamberlain, who you and I have never heard of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So Chamberlain, it says, oh, he went on to fight in seven more battles. He was wounded in every single one of them. He impressed General Grant so much that General Grant asked Chamberlain to accept the surrender of the South at Appomattox Courthouse. So then Chamberlain, who you and I have never even heard of, goes back to Maine. He becomes the president of Bowdoin College. He wins the governorship four times, never by less than 80% of the electorate. The guy should be on currency, and you and I have never even heard of him. But that's the kind of leader I'm interested in, is this is a guy that had no title. And the great thing about this book, again, The Killer Angels, I've recommended this book to thousands of people, all ethnicities, all races, every, and everybody's, everybody's like, wow, this is a great book. And what's great about it is because the book, I think they mention Abraham Lincoln's name once. I mean, Simon Sinek is probably one of the best leadership writers right now. You know, uh, leaders eat last and um, start by asking why. Uh, but he's always talking about that. And it's it's very similar characteristics in great leaders. Great leaders are, are humble. Mm-hmm. Great leaders don't have a title. You don't have to have a title to be the leader. John Maxwell talks about it in his books, too. John Maxwell is probably one of my favorite leadership authors because uh, uh, Maxwell, before he became, a, you know, Mr. Leadership Guru, he was a... Uh, a pastor for one of the largest uh, churches in America. But when he, when he was a pastor for a small church, I think it was in Indiana, every time he, he, he asked a question, all the parish looked at uh, this one guy and that guy always answered the question. So he, he realized this is the guy that runs everything. And so that was the guy he would consult. And I was like, wow, that was a really good lesson was he was willing to, even though he had the title of I'm the lead pastor, he recognized, but this is the guy that has all the clout. You, you often see that. I mean, you see that with most leaders is uh, just just because there's the figurehead doesn't mean, again, I'm a huge 
sports fan. So uh, Phil Jackson has won 11 NBA championships more than anybody. But I think Phil would be the first person to tell you the reason he won 11 NBA championships was his assistant coach, Tex Winter, came up with, you know, an offense that nobody else had had ever come up with. A great leader is willing to distribute the, everybody can get the spoils. I mean, there's no reason for one person to have to have their name on everything. Again, I feel like I'm answering very long answers to very short questions, Josh. I get really excited about this stuff. You know, if anyone hasn't seen your TED Talk, you just go story after story and they're all so valuable. And so I want to have my listeners definitely connect with you because you do provide a lot of good content, not only in your books, but then also on social media. So for those who want to connect with you, how, how may they do that through social media? Yeah. So again, if everybody just goes to freereadingtraining.com, not only are they going to get a copy of my book and two digital trainings, they'll get one positive email a week for the rest of their life or my life, because I just think there's too much negativity in the world. You know, I'm always looking for those positive stories yeah, if everybody just goes to freereadingtraining.com or if you if anybody needs anything, they can go, my name's Danny Brussel. But again, uh, it's not about me. It's about uh, getting everybody in a positive frame of mind. Uh, I'm very proud when to be around people that are part of the solution instead of the problem. And I think contrary to popular belief, there's a lot more problem solvers out there than there are excuse makers. Yeah. And uh, I get I get really excited. And it goes back to what you were talking about with uh, a, a leader without a title. I'm like, I think those are most of the leaders. I, I see them all the time. Yeah. And, you know, you're an assistant principal, but there's nothing more exciting than seeing like a janitor at your school take immense pride or, or one of the cooks in the cafeteria or the school bus driver who takes the kid home after football practice at seven o'clock at night. I mean, there's, there's people that do heroic things every day and we don't really notice them. I want to notice those people. Uh, I've always told my students, I'm like, you keep on doing the right thing. You'll be amazed. People start to notice. There was actually a great documentary uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago called Undefeated about this uh, this football high school football team in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And there's a story just like that in the movie. I mean, I was watching that movie on the plane and everybody's looking at me because I'm, I'm sitting there with tears in my eyes because there was there was this kid that always did everything right and nothing. He wound up injuring his knee, but then he got he got better again, and uh, uh, he, get, he finally gets to go back to practice. He plays one play, and the coach yells for him to come over, and the kid has – he's, he's angry because he wanted to practice, but the coach is like, uh, you have a problem? And the, the kid's like, no, sir. And the coach is like, that's right, no, sir. That's what I always like about you. You always show respect. You always do the right things. You know, you're a great student. You always work your hardest. And I've always told you that people start to notice those things. He's like, I was on the phone just now with a, a guy that runs the lumber yard. I had dinner with him last night. And he just called me and told me, whatever college you want to go to, he's going to give you a full ride scholarship. He's going to pay for it. I mean, I'm in tears listening to this. You know, focus on the solution. Focus on the positives. If you're going to watch the news, watch CBS Sunday morning. It's like nothing but positive stories. It's my favorite thing in the world to watch. It's what Charles Carroll used to host. Right. There's so many good things. If, if you feel bad about your own situation, go volunteer at a soup kitchen. Volunteer at the cancer ward. There's people that have it much worse off than you. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spoken all around the world. I spoke to a, a group of 5,000 girls in India and these two seniors come up to me after the talk, and they're just beautiful girls, just smiling so brightly. They're so excited. One wants to be a lawyer. One wants to be a doctor. 
And I said, well, that's great. Are you going to go to university here? Or maybe you'll go to England or the United States. I'm like, oh, we can't, we can't leave India. We're girls. I'm like, get back in that auditorium. I got them all back in there. I'm like, now is your moment, ladies. I mean, within five years, India is going to be the largest country on the planet in terms of population. I'm like, you are a very young democracy. You're only 70 years old. Yet you've already elected a woman prime minister. America still hasn't elected a woman president. Yeah. I'm like, right now, there's twice as many women in India as there are people in the United States. There's more women in India with a graduate degree than there are people in the United States. I'm like, you just made it my life mission that one of you is going to be a prime minister. One of you is going to be a Supreme Court justice. One of you is going to be a really good parent because I'm going to tell you I believe in you. I, this is exactly why you got an education too, Josh. I always tell my kids this. I'm like, you know what? Sometimes you need somebody else to believe in you before you believe in yourself. I believe in all of you. They only give me the best and the brightest. And that's why I'm here. Uh, I mean, and I miss that. I miss that with the little ones, you know, uh, but you go to different levels. You can affect, you know, now my job is to affect people like you, Josh, because we see People don't know the statistics in this country. We lose over half of our teachers in America in their first six years in the job. We lose over half of our educational administrators in the first three. You know, and my job is to talk people like you off the cliff and say, hey, you know, you're now affecting a thousand little bodies every single day. You know, never, never underestimate how important you are. You know, and then your job is then to spread that to the hundred teachers at your school. Hey, all of you, you got your 30 bodies in your class every single day. People need to hear that. People don't hear enough good stuff. I was blessed. I had great parents that always gave me lots of encouragement. And I realize a lot of people don't get that. We're going to feed some caffeine for the soul, you and me, Josh. (laughs) Well, Danny, I really do appreciate everything that you do in the entire world. I know you're speaking all over and you're consulting and you're writing. You're an inspiration to many. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, sharing your journey, sharing your leadership tips, and definitely sharing your wonderful stories. Thanks for all you do, Josh. Keep on doing it.